0: The History Channel, original podcast. Sports history this week. October 17th, 2005. I'm Kalen Jones. The 05 06 season is about to start, and the NBA league office is worried. Michael Jordan is retired, and TV ratings are down. Way down. Like half. According to NBA commissioner David Stern, the answer to getting those ratings back up lies in the way audiences perceive the players.
1: You have a younger league. You also have a new generation of players who are very much connected to hip hop culture, different than the players before them.
0: And right or wrong, this perception reaches a tipping point just 11 months earlier at one of the most shocking incidents in league history the Malice at the Palace, when a fight breaks out between the Detroit Pistons and Indiana Pacers, and even some unruly fans. The lasting image of players being provoked into charging the stands and striking fans isn't exactly the Mona Lisa. To the NBA, neither is players showing up the game sporting jewelry or wearing what is, to most players, just regular clothes. League leadership is still grappling with players representing a culture it doesn't understand. The NBA believes it has an imaging problem. So with the new season just weeks away, David Stern reveals his plan to push against the NBA's hip hop image, a dress code.
2: And the league was trying to say, we're losing sponsors, we're losing money, we gotta hurry up and try to clean this act up. We gotta make sure everybody comes in in suits. Maybe if we make them look all the same, we could hide the fact of this quote unquote thuggish attire.
0: Today, David Stern announces his attempt to change the image of the NBA in order to, theoretically, make the league more marketable to corporate America. So how does this plan play out? And with these restrictions of self-expression, how do the players actually come out on top?
3: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
0: David Stern takes over as the commissioner of the NBA in 1984. It may be hard to imagine, but the league was not nearly the global juggernaut that it is today. The average player's salary was under $300,000, The league was only broadcasting games in two countries as opposed to over 200 today. Stern's goal is simple but ambitious. Turn the NBA into an international powerhouse. And his plans are so aggressive that he can't simply follow the playbook of other sports leagues like the NFL. Instead, he looks to one of the world's most successful corporations.
4: The Disney model. The Disney approach to the NBA.
0: That's Dave Zerum author of NBA 75, The Definitive History.
4: Whereas you have your Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, etc. the NBA was able to showcase these huge stars that they had in Magic and Larry. And from there, they were able to build kind of a stable around it. Hakeem, you know, Clyde Drexler, and so on and so forth.
0: Stern realizes that marketing around the stars of the league is key to growing the sport's popularity. The wide-smiling, enthusiastic Magic Johnson leads the Showtime Lakers in Los Angeles, while the surly but beloved Larry Bird leads the Celtics on the East Coast. And the league's next superstar is drafted the very same year that Stern takes over as commissioner. The Chicago Bulls pick Michael Jordan of the University of North Carolina. Jordan comes off as affable, and as his career takes off, he's embraced by the world. Just ask Oprah.
3: Because you have sort of been elected a role model, yes. and I think you handle it so well. You really do. who is an athlete just because you're an athlete or just because you're famous doesn't mean you deserve the title but i think you do you're the classiest act i know
4: Uh, michael jordan comes along and everything kind of changes and he sort of becomes the face of everything jordan wore suits to games you know jordan was a a corporate citizen you know a corporate model and that's one of the reasons why i'm sure the nba loved having him as, as the face of their league
0: Despite Jordan's seemingly impeccable off-court fashion, he does have a conflict with the league about what he can wear on the court. All right, now Michael, is this the shoe? That you- Here's Jordan in 1984 joking about is. it That's on Late Night with David Letterman. But is this the shoe that the NBA wouldn't let you wear? Yeah. Now, why wouldn't they let you wear it? Just, because just it's ugly, oh, no, I guess for starters. <laughs> <laughs>
1: hey, I agree with you; they are ugly. Now, wait a minute! Didn't you help design these? It's the shoe, not the color. Oh, not the I didn't color. Have anything to do? With okay, the but
0: what's wrong with the coloring? What, what, what rule do we violate here? Well, it doesn't have any white in it. Uh huh. <laughs> well, well, neither does the NBA. <laughs> the sneaker was banned because it wasn't white enough. At this point in NBA history, there's a rule that all sneakers worn during games must be at least 51% white. But Jordan, in classic Jordan fashion, ends up capitalizing on the publicity from this moment. He ends up releasing a banned version of the Air Jordan 1 sneakers, and Nike even puts out a TV commercial with sensor bars over the shoes.
1: On September 15th, Nike created a revolutionary new basketball shoe. On October 18th, the NBA threw them out of the game. Fortunately, the NBA can't stop you from wearing them.
0: And that's one of the main reasons why the NBA loves having Jordan as the face of the league. Deep down, he's a businessman. Brands from Nike to Gatorade to Wheaties to Coca-Cola line up to throw advertising dollars at Jordan. It's estimated that he's made over $1.7 billion. That's billions with a B from endorsements alone over the last 40 years. Here's Dr. Todd Boyd. Professor of Cinema and Media Studies at the USC School of Cinematic Arts.
1: Throughout the 90s, you had this image of Michael Jordan, the sort of, you know, business philosopher, corporate pitch man.
0: Jordan is also a TV ratings dominator. During the height of Jordan's second run of three consecutive championships, NBA Nielsen ratings soared from a 4.9 in 1997 to an all-time high of 5.5 in '98. To this day, of the six most watched NBA games of all time, five of them are finals games featuring Michael Jordan.
1: The Chicago Bulls have won their sixth NBA championship.
0: And while Jordan hangs around the league from 01 to 03, he's not quite Michael Jordan anymore. And the TV ratings show it from a 5.5 rating in 1998 to a 2.4 by the 03 04 season, a loss of nearly 60% of their viewers.
4: So the NBA was panicked, in a sense, I'm sure, and and eager to do kind of anything they could to change, to bring fans back to the league. Someone had to step up and take over as the league's most popular player. And
0: so begins the search for the next Jordan. And any basketball fan will tell you.
1: They don't make Michael Jordans every day. The guy won three titles, stepped away, came back and won three more. So, you know, you can't really expect to replicate that. Michael was such a dominant star in the way that he excelled that it was inevitably going to present a problem.
0: To be the next Jordan, you have to be ridiculously skilled, tough, competitive as hell, unique, and tremendously popular. Soon, one name starts to emerge. Allen Iverson, A.I., the answer. In his first season, he takes on Jordan, literally.
1: Iverson draws Jordan out. Watch this. Michael's trying to stay with him here. Very quick move. He goes to left, his right, his left, his right, and he comes up with a jumper. Knocks it down, and Michael tried to retaliate the other end.
0: Iverson wins Rookie of the Year, and his jersey sales skyrocket. And at just six feet tall, he dominates against players much taller than him. He's an instant fan favorite. After he wins MVP in 2001, Iverson establishes himself as one of the world's most popular athletes.
1: AI was iconic. He had a reputation, he had a visibility, he had a style, he had a swagger. Jordan had those stories come out about gambling, but Jordan was never controversial. He was generally embraced across the board. Iverson represented something a little different. You know, he was not the across-the-board superstar as much as he represented a certain niche, but that niche was very powerful and very influential.
0: What Iverson doesn't have? The corporate, brand-friendly image that had been so successful for the NBA's marketing efforts behind Jordan.
4: AI was famously kind of the anti-Jordan. I always love the Eric Dyson quote who called Allen Iverson Tupac with a jump shot. And it kind of embodies, you know, his role, his stature, uh, not just for the NBA, but for the greater culture at the time. It was a real time of change in the NBA when he went from kind of corporate to anti-corporate.
0: Iverson enters the league with multiple arrests. In 2000, he even goes toe-to-toe with David Stern over the use of homophobic lyrics in a rap song he releases.
1: You know, Allen Iverson was hugely popular, and he was also controversial, which in some ways may have added to the popularity.
0: And another massive difference between Iverson and Jordan, their style. Jordan shows up the games in suits. Iverson often shows up in a do-rag and ball cap and puts his hair in cornrows. Iverson famously tells GQ, I don't feel comfortable when I have on a suit unless it's a sweatsuit.
1: And my mentality all was always when, when when I was coming in my rookie year, I was like, basically, now I can buy all the clothes that the guys from around my way yeah. want and wear anything that I want to wear because I can afford it now. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna dress like this. When I was leaving from the arena, I was going to the club. I won't go into church. A new generation came in and, and hip hop is notoriously not formal in the same sense. There's hip hop style, but it's opposite of more traditional style. AI represented a certain aesthetic uh, certain style, certain approach, his appearance, you know, his braids, his tats, you know, his bag of uniform. He came to the NBA with this hip hop swagger, you know, but he embodied it. He looked like a rapper.
0: And those tattoos, the NBA isn't a fan of those either.
4: When he was on the cover of Hoop Magazine, which was an NBA print publication at the time, they airbrushed out his tattoos when they put him on the cover. So there had been a, a a trend, I guess you could say, of the NBA uh, really pushing back from where the culture was going at the time and really, really pushing back on, you know, the hip hop culture and what they felt it represented. Here's Jordan Liggins,
0: NBA and WNBA writer and co-host of the Spinsters podcast.
2: I don't feel like he expected to be the league's Michael Jordan. He wanted to hoop like he wanted to hoop. And that's that's all it was. And it, it became something so much bigger. Hearing Allen Iverson talk about it in the early 2000s, he said, you know, my favorite rappers wore this. My The people in my neighborhood wear this. Like, I feel comfortable in this. This allows me to express myself. And in a recent interview, I love what he said. He said, you know, we don't all play the same. Why should we all dress the same?
4: Over the
0: next five years, the NBA finds more than 20 players, including Iverson, Shaquille O'Neal, and Kobe Bryant, thousands of dollars for wearing shorts that are, quote, too baggy.
4: Loaded words like thugs and thuggish were used all the time to describe players and their dress and their attire and their mannerisms and whatnot. And then when you have an incident that's so blatant, you know, without question, like the most extreme brawl that we've seen in North American sports history, unprecedented, it only substantiated like the worst fears.
0: Zarum is talking about the malice at the palace, a game between the Detroit Pistons and Indiana Pacers on November 4th, 2004. After Indiana's Ron Artest fouls Detroit's Ben Wallace near the rim, a scuffle breaks out. Oh. Teammates and coaches quickly separate Wallace from Artest, who casually lies down on the scorer's table as players continue jawing at each other. But just when it seems like things are cooling off, a fan throws a drink at our test, who goes charging into the stands.
1: This is not good for the NBA or for Detroit. This is the ugliest scene you'll ever see.
2: What in the world is going on here?
0: Fans and players are fighting in the stands. It's chaos. The rest of the game is canceled, and the next day, David Stern addresses the media shock uh, and revulsion and fear were my reactions to watching the spectacle that occurred on Friday night at the palace at Auburn Hills we must affirm that the NBA will strive to exemplify the best that can be offered by professional sports and not allow our sport to be debased by what seem to be declining expectations for the behavior of fans and athletes alike. The NBA suspends nine players for a total of 146 games. Our test is suspended for the rest of the season, including the playoffs, a total of 86 games. That's still the longest suspension in NBA history. But the fallout goes beyond just these teams. Some view it as the climax of a broader cultural change throughout the NBA.
1: The so-called malice at the palace, which I think in a lot of ways was the culmination of younger players coming into the league, hip hop, a lot of different factors. But, you know, there was a freakout In 1995, players start coming directly from high school to the NBA, so the league got a lot younger very fast. A hip-hop culture, you know, had gotten to be increasingly popular and influential. And certain elements of hip-hop that were inspired by the crack epidemic, war on drugs, street culture, the penitentiary, all of these things factored into various elements of hip-hop.
0: David Cern wants to create a new image for the NBA, steering away from hip-hop's growing influence on the league. And his big plan, an NBA dress code.
1: David Stern, it's hard to, you know, read his mind from back then. But um, I don't know what he was thinking, honestly.
3: (laughs) When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
4: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The
2: 0506
0: NBA season is about to tip off in just two weeks. On October 17, 2005, Commissioner David Stern announces a new league-wide policy, the NBA's first-ever dress code. The dress code is no sleeveless shirts, no shorts, no T-shirts, no chains, pendants, and medallions worn over the players' clothes, no sunglasses while indoors, and no headphones. These rules apply whenever they're representing the team, including on the way to games, on the way out, and when talking to media. If a player comes out mid-game and sits on the bench, he has to put on a sports coat.
2: In my opinion, which a lot of people would agree, that it was very targeted. It was targeted at a very specific type of NBA player.
0: Again, that's the voice of Jordan Liggins.
2: The rules were very specific of no oversize, no jewelry, no chains outside of your shirt. All of these different things that We're just flat out racist, like I'll say it. And the league was trying to say, you know, we're losing sponsors, we're losing money. We got to hurry up and clean this act up. We got to make sure everybody comes in in suits. Maybe if we make them look all the same, we could hide the fact of this, quote unquote, thuggish attire or any other outside realms.
0: Basically, the league wants to recapture the perception it held during the days of Jordan
1: throughout the 90s, you had this image of Michael Jordan, the sort of, you know, business philosopher, corporate pitch man. He was always suited. The younger generation didn't wear suits and ties. They wore hip-hop gear, you know. People dressed the way people would appear in music videos. Things became increasingly baggy. Throwback jerseys got to be very popular. Uh, Do-rags, you know, all these elements from hip-hop, street culture, et cetera. And yet... While the NBA
0: tries to eliminate the hip-hop look from its games, the league is simultaneously profiting off of these same cultural ideas.
1: They were playing hip-hop in the arena. Rappers were sitting courtside at various games. They're blasting hip-hop, but you want to control how people dress. So there was a bit of a contradiction in that space.
0: The backlash is immediate. Here's Keisha McLeod. Professional stylists for athletes, including NBA superstars like James Harden and Giannis Antetokounmpo, McLeod began working with NBA players shortly after the league instituted its dress code.
3: What nineteen-year-old want to wear a suit? <laughs> <laughs> right, that nineteen-year-old is going to put on a suit, and if they don't put it on the right way, they get fined like twenty thousand dollars. What nineteen-year-old, twenty-year-old would put on a suit and like, all right, if I put on a suit, I'm going to listen to my favorite music, at least feel good and. Let me hear my beats. Now I'm getting fined $20,000 because it doesn't fit the dress code. You can't tell me to play a sport and then tell me how to dress.
4: NBA
0: players begin to speak out publicly.
4: Paul Pierce said about the rule, you know, he said, like, the reason why I have chains is to show them because they're flashy. I don't want to put them under my clothes. i want to put them over my clothes is why I have them.
2: Jason Richardson, you know, he said, I could be in a tux or I can be in a suit and I could still be a crook. Like, the whole idea of this, oh, I'm since I'm wearing chains and baggy clothes that I'm this thug, there are a lot of people that do bad things that are also wearing suits.
0: Raymond Felton, a rookie for the Charlotte Bobcats, doesn't pack what he calls suitable clothes for a road trip, basically daring the league to punish him. Nugget center Marcus Camby says the NBA should give the players a stipend to buy clothes that match the code. But not all players see a problem. After all, players reportedly discussed the role during collective bargaining talks earlier in the summer. Some say they're perfectly fine with the league's new policy, including Sean Marion, Grant Hill, even a certain up-and-coming superstar.
4: Interesting enough, LeBron James, who was a kid at the time, you know, said, "You know, he's cool with it. Whatever. You know, he understands the NBA's the jobs going to work." I uh, think he's what 21 at the time, 20.
0: Do you think that he was trying to just be like Michael Jordan with that answer? Because I feel like LeBron today probably wouldn't say that.
4: Totally, Kalen. There might have been an element of uh, Republicans wear sneakers too, right?
0: That's a reference to Republicans buy sneakers too, a classic Jordan quote from 1990. But despite the controversy over the dress code, Commissioner Stern maintains his position. In response to claims that the policy is racist, he says the idea came not from Allen Iverson's outfits, but from Steve Nash the white two-time MVP who often wore hoodies to post-game pressers. Stern even goes so far as to say that if certain players have a problem with the dress code, they might have to quit playing in the NBA. In December, 13 different players are fined thousands of dollars for wearing shorts that are too long during a game. But in terms of the clothes that players are wearing off the court, the players soon realize that violating the dress code doesn't come with any real consequences. By January 2006, just two months after the dress code is implemented, some players just start to ignore it. Here's 13-year NBA veteran Jalen Rose talking about David Stern.
1: He instituted a quote-unquote dress code and it probably only lasted five minutes, Hmm. but it kept all of the shareholders happy because they understood that he was working in the best interest of marketing and promoting the game, but the players also knew that it wasn't gonna be straight and it wasn't gonna be enforced and it wasn't.
0: But maybe the idea of enforcement was never really the point.
1: It's sort of like the concept of a panopticon, right? Like if I tell you, you know, I have a camera watching your every move, I don't necessarily have to have a camera watching your every move because if I can get you to believe that you're being watched, it might affect your behavior, right? Whether or not I'm actually watching you is secondary to me implanting this idea in your head that I'm watching you, right? And so if you think, oh, I can't do this because I'm being watched, I've won. And whether I put a camera in place to observe you or not, I got you to believe that based on what I said to me, that's how the dress code worked. It's like, We're paying attention. We're looking at what you're wearing. Like, maybe before we wasn't paying attention, but now we are. And, you know, if you f*** up, there's a penalty. If you can convince people of this, then eventually they start policing themselves.
0: And while certain players ignore the dress code, some players actually lean into it. Stylists like Rachel Johnson and our guest today, Keisha McLeod, have helped turn NBA players into leaders in the fashion scene, which like the NBA, has also relaxed its views with those presenting hip-hop culture. When McLeod started working with NBA players in 2006...
3: If you wanted something made, you'd have to wait six to eight months. Now, I could get something made from Ralph Lauren and be here in three weeks.
0: Dolce & Gabbana, Armani... Heavy hitters in the fashion scene began embracing players dressing up in their brands for tunnel fits, arriving at games and at press conferences after them. For our listeners, what is a tunnel fit?
2: <laughs> Got it. A tunnel fit is you are wearing a look that is spelled L E W K, a look when you're going into a game. So You have, a lot of them just have like their Louis Vuitton, you know, groom bag, travel bag, and they're walking into the arena and it's the outfit that they're wearing before they're about to go change into their uniform.
0: As Zach Graham writes in Rolling Stone in 2016, NBA players accepted, then embraced, and eventually began to have fun with the new dress code, changing men's fashion in the process. Players like Russell Westbrook Chris Paul, P.J. Tucker, and more are routinely praised, or at least discussed, for their bold and interesting styles.
2: As Black people, it is a part of our culture to flip it. If something is deemed as a rule to bring us down, we know how to elevate and make sure we are still the stars and the Black girl magic and the Black magic that we do. This is a great example of that. And a rule that was meant to kind of shame our culture and specifically players and how they dress, it turned into an opportunity to show off our style in a different way.
0: Today, NBA players regularly appear on the cover of fashion magazines like Vogue or GQ. A
1: lot of these other players, I mean, you know, from players like Westbrook starting their own fashion lines to Shea Gillius Alexander, uh, Jordan Clarkson. I mean, there's a group of players now that people talk about as like fashion icons. You know, LeBron's walking into the tunnel with a glass of wine in his hand. Like, that's one of the coolest moves I've ever seen. There's a whole kind of, you know, cultural aspect to it that really didn't exist in the same way when the dress code was implemented.
3: It's unfortunate and fortunate what happened to Alan Iverson because that's why they did it. Anthony Mason, Allen Iverson, you know, things like that to where they're like, oh, because you dress like this means you're going to play rough. One plus one is not equal in two, you know. And so but in order for them to change the dress code, we were able to be more expressive and, you know, have fun in the later years and really be ourselves to where we came back to 2005 and beyond
0: Even David Stern, who passed away in 2020, seemed delighted with the unintended results of what many see as one of the league's most public failures.
1: You could wear jeans, just wear a pair of shoes and a shirt with a collar. But our players went over the top. They started dressing and and frankly, they got these great bodies and they just began to be on Gentlemen's Quarterly and Vogue and all kinds of fancy places. And then they took it to the next level. They started designing their own fashion lines. I think it's great.
2: Give credit to that rule for giving <laughs> us all of these amazing fits and the wonderful culture of NBA and fashion. But I definitely think it was a response to something that was meant to bring us down. But this is what we do. We flip it. We reverse it. Reverse Uno card. And now it's a whole culture of fashion around the NBA. So I think it worked out.
0: Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week? 1989, an earthquake shakes the Bay Area during warm-ups for Game 3 of the World Series between the San Francisco Giants and Oakland A's, causing an unprecedented postponement. And 2012, Lance Armstrong is officially stripped of his 7 Tour de France titles after an investigation reveals his use of steroids and other banned substances. If you know of any other stories from global sports history you'd like us to cover on this podcast, or if you'd just like to get in touch, please shoot us an email at sportspod@history.com. Special thanks to our guests, Dave Zaram, author of NBA 75, The Definitive History. Jordan Liggins, NBA and WNBA writer and co-host of the Spinsters Basketball Podcast. Keisha McLeod, personal stylists to stars including Serena Williams, P.J. Tucker, Chris Bosch, and Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Dr. Todd Boyd, professor of cinema and media studies at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. This episode was produced by David Ingram. It was story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by Bill Moss. Sports History This Week is also produced by Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dixie. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our supervising producer is McCe Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review sports history this week wherever you get your podcast. and we'll see you next week. Small details are big surfaces. tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.